From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudalyubov. The past can sometimes be more revealing than the present. For years, the journalist Irina Baragan and Andrei Soldatov have been reporting about Russia's security services. But then they decided to look at the agency's history and wrote The Compatriots, a book about the Soviet and Russian state's obsession with exiles and emigres. They learned that the continuity between the KGB of old and the present ecosystem of Russia's security organizations is much greater than many thought possible. Irina and Andrei join me today to discuss this and more. Paragan and Soldatov's previous book is about the history of Russia's internet and the authorities' efforts to seal it off from the World Wide Web, a topical issue these days. So, let's begin. Let's discuss the modern state of the internet and what we've uh, learned during the protest movement in Belarus. I was really impressed because I saw that it was actually possible. The civil society was able to produce two or three IT platforms that were able essentially to create a parallel structure to a state organization, let's say an electoral commission. The IT platform Golas and IT platform Zuber were able to collect data and absorb data and build a credible result that suggests unequivocally that um, the elections were rigged. And that's, I think, in itself is quite an impressive result. But what do you see as um, people who've been um, thinking about this for a long time? What do you see as the main result of this civic internet movement in Belarus? On the one hand, it's quite interesting that once again, we see that the internet and IT platforms played such a huge role in civil protests. And it might be comparable to what we saw back in 2011, 2012 in Moscow. And it's all good and fine, but on the other hand, it also betrays the weaknesses of traditional structures of opposition. I think it was quite striking that the protests were actually, if not organized, but coordinated via Telegram channel, which means that the Coordination Council was in position only to follow Telegram channel. And uh, it's good for Telegram channel, but it's not really good for the opposition movement. It means that traditional things like trade unions, political parties, grassroots movements, they are are non-existent or insignificant. And as we all learned from the Moscow experience, well, IT platforms is good, but it's not enough. And it looks like exactly that thing we are witnessing right now in Minsk, that to use inventively IT platforms is simply not enough to start a real protest movement. Andre, you are too critical of Belarusian opposition. No, I'm... I think that producing an internet tool for checking the result of the elections to prove that they were falsified, it's really, really great. And this is a way how you can show to the world that the results were falsified and you can prove it. That's great. Because without this, you can just talking about this, you can refer to the public opinion, show people who don't like the result, and that's all. But I don't know, some kind of tools which is available everybody online. It's great. We didn't use it in Russia during the last protest. From what I hear from people who are in the industry, that Belarusians were pretty innovative in uh, those platforms. I haven't heard from anyone that um, an exact same idea has been realized anywhere. 
what they built, they built a platform where any of the voters could get registered on the platform and then go vote and then take a picture of their ballot and uh, send it to that platform. So they could actually check the results with high rate of um, veracity. That's, uh, I think, in itself is pretty much of an achievement. It's unprecedented. Probably we need to thank uh, really a lucrative IT community in Minsk, which has been real thankful for quite some time. And now many of them decided to support the protest and what we see as a result of that. But to what extent do you think the state structures were effective in countering the effort of uh, the Belarusian opposition online, on the internet? If we try to separate and to talk only about online repression, it was absolutely ineffective. And uh, the internet was cut, I think, for three days, and it was not really effective. And yes, it affected mostly media reporting. But if the idea was to prevent people from getting to streets, it never worked, actually. The problem is that this kind of pressure was combined with offline repression. And uh, what we see now is that to some extent it worked, unfortunately. So the problem is that sometimes you think that these guys, we are not really inventive or sophisticated and we use very simple and brutal methods. But when you use these methods in a totalitarian or semi-totalitarian society, it has a really big impact on people because it's not only about technical side, it's also about intimidation and sending a message. We wrote in our book The Red Web on the Internet. If you want to get a complete result, great result, and prevent people from organizing via social networks or via internet, you have to cut off the internet completely, shut down the whole internet in the country which is nowadays is impossible because it can put the country into chaos, given how important the internet now is. And other way, it doesn't work because nobody can prevent people from organizing via social networks. Because if there are a lot of people and they wanted to send each other information via social networks or texting or any, any way, they will do. So Lukashenko mm-hmm. was wrong. And he's cutting internet, some parts of internet, only for three days. And he failed. And his failure was predictable. What do you think are the lessons for civil society in Russia from this, including the experience of Belarusian opposition and the state structure's effort to cut off the internet? What do you think is important to learn from all of this? Well, first of all, it was a big lesson for, for the Russian authorities. And I think what they learned, they understood that they actually they are doing quite fine. And the direction they took two years ago deciding to attack not the platforms, or not only the platforms, but also the users, meaning that now they are producing more and more repressive legislation targeting what kind of application could be on your smartphone. That is a much more I would say, advanced stage of repression than what we saw in Belarus. On the other hand, uh, it's really difficult to say what uh, the Russian society learned, because this year... 2020 was extremely bad for the Russian opposition. And I'm not talking only about Poznan of Navalny, but it's also, for instance, about how the Russian society reacted to the constitutional amendments, which means that actually we got no reaction from the opposition to this uh, crucial historical, I would say, step taken by the Kremlin. We got no protest, no cohesive strategy. Well, actually what we got, we got some sort of silence, a confusing message. And on the one hand, 
we see lots of people excited by what we see in Belarus, but at the same time, the mood of depression, which is palpable in Moscow, hasn't changed actually. And I fear that it's still the case even now. Back to Russia then. Do you think that Russian authorities could be successful in building what they call sovereign internet? And to what extent, if that's even possible, those new tools, the ways of managing centrally, apparently managing the internet within the political borders of the country, to what extent that could help the authorities to essentially control most of the activity they consider dangerous? To some extent, it might be successful, unfortunately, because the idea of the Kremlin is not to isolate the entire country. The idea is to get a tool to isolate a particular region if in that region they see something dangerous happening. For instance, some local protest like we saw in Ingushetia last year or some natural catastrophe which might provoke some protests. And the idea is to have a technical capability to switch off access to this region remotely from Moscow. For that purpose, they are building up this uh, special, actually placing this special equipment on internet exchange points all over the country. Now they learned that they cannot hope to switch off all the traffic. That is, as Irina said, absolutely impossible. But what we want to achieve, and I think to some extent it might be achievable, is to switch off live streaming. Uh, you know video, why, video. why streaming is so important. Yeah, yeah and of course we understand why it's so important, because it's a thing which actually provokes you to... It's it's very emotional. You see this video picture and you, you understand how it might actually trigger an emotional reaction. And that could be done. But texting, SMS, social networks to some extent, to block them completely... I think it would be uh, it would be impossible. Okay, is this true that the kind of control that we see in China is rather an outlier? So in China, the internet has been growing for decades under states and the Communist Party's careful watch, right? In Russia, we have a very different situation. So basically, does this mean that um, full control on the scale that we see in China is simply is not possible given? the technical capabilities. Theoretically, it's possible in distant future, but practically it's not because China, as you mentioned, China started filtering internet back into the 1996 when internet just appeared in the country. In Russia, the authorities did not. Internet was completely free until 2012. And internet censorship was introduced only in 2012 in Russia. And frankly speaking, at the first stage, it was quite ineffective. And, you know, even now you can find access to any prohibited materials using any circumvention tools like VPN or even special extension of your browser or something like that. So the authorities really seriously, they started just when they adopted uh, this sovereign internet law. And as far as we can see, because there is not a lot of available information about what they have done, internet checkpoints or on the technical facilities or the technical infrastructure of the internet. But as far as we know, the authorities didn't move too far from the period this legislation was adopted. But theoretically, they can put more efforts into this so they can reach some impressive achievement, like really get a possibility to cut off regions from... Entire regions, you mean? Entire regions, uh, just push on a button, say, in the Kremlin. (laughs) 
Uh, but uh, there's uh, the other possibility, which is, uh, to be honest, uh, to me, much more frightening. And uh, this makes it much more close to the Chinese approach. As we all know, the Chinese system is based not only on uh, censorship, but also on a very smart idea to force Chinese users to use and to stick to Chinese applications. So they do not use Facebook, they do not use Twitter, they use Chinese replicas of uh, international social media which is actually very smart because you just keep your people in a bubble. And that, this is exactly the line the Russian authority took two years ago. And it's quite effective because right now we have legislation which forces the manufacturers of smartphones to have Russian application pre-installed on their devices. The Russian authority is trying to invent all kinds of incentives for the ordinary users to stick to the Russian application. And that could be really successful because everybody understands that the biggest threat to the information monopoly of the state is posed not by community of activists, because this community might be not really seizable and uh, these people are already all identified. The problem in the age of the internet is if you have some sort of crisis and you have bystanders and just ordinary people who might be frightened or fascinated by what they see, and they would start posting about this particular event. And all of a sudden, you can get your crisis upscaled from, I don't know, 300 people to millions. And the idea of the government is to prevent just that. And if they would have all Russian citizens, or most of them, using only Russian applications, which are already in close cooperation with the Russian authorities, this problem could be coped with. But if people would, I would say, use Google or Facebook or Twitter, it would be much more difficult. So the line and the direction the Russian authorities are taking now, unfortunately, can't be quite effective. You can use totalitarian approach and force people to do something. In other ways, they will be punished. You can use another approach to promise people something good for using local services like discounts, like better conditions for mortgage or something like that. This approach is using in China and it's quite very successful. But what do you think in very general terms about the prospects for creating this sovereign internet, essentially detaching the internet from the global worldwide web? Is this even real? Is this possible? No, it's absolutely impossible. Well, we heard of some attempts of some countries trying to do that. There was some strange story in Syria once and in Egypt, but it was a very short-lived effort and uh, it was never really successful. Every day we are getting more cables, cross-border cables, so we got more connections, we got more way to connect the country with the outside world. And uh, to cut it off completely, it would be disastrous because we are getting too dependent on online technologies. And even the very primitive idea to force, say, Russian companies to store all their data and all their equipment on the Russian soil, even that idea failed. We know that even now, the legislation which actually required Russian companies to reallocate their servers was introduced back in 2015. But even now, five years later, we know that lots of stuff is still stored somewhere just because it's the way the internet works, actually. You can rent somewhere very good storage facilities or you can rent this cable or that cable. It's just technology. You cannot 
just cut it off completely and to live in a modern world. Uh, the first victim would be the banking system of the country, and I think it's impossible to do. Yeah, well, I've been reading this book of um, Malcolmson, the guy who wrote about Splinternet. I was impressed, actually, about this whole notion that essentially the U.S. state basically left the internet, but only for a very short period of time when uh, there was this probably an illusion of the internet uh, becoming completely free of state intervention, becoming essentially a commercial tool, but it never really happened. And uh, then they started to sort of take it back. And I'm sure that people in the Kremlin read this in a very different way that we do. Uh, they basically see it as a tool of foreign powers on their territory. To be honest, it's even worse because the big dispute between, say, the Americans and the Russians for 15, 17 years was of the terminology. And the Russians always insisted on using information security because we wanted to talk about how to control content online. And the Americans always insisted of using cyber security because we wanted to talk only about cables and computers, physical entities. And after 2016, the Americans started using Russian terminology, saying, look, probably the Russians were right. Probably we need to do something about content. Probably we need to think about content security. And just imagine what a joy could be in the Kremlin that finally the Americans are starting using their language and their terminology, how they described the world online. Yeah, I think there's a big irony in that. Oh yeah, that's a very good point. I didn't really think about it that way. That's right. Basically, the Russians are probably succeeding now in persuading a lot of not just Americans, I guess. It kind of changed persuading many in the West to change their thinking and uh, see the internet as a conduit for some kind of information. And some of it could be digital could be bad for a nation, for a country, which I think, yeah, indeed, wasn't really present some years ago. Before that, it was all about opportunities and only the Kremlin saw the internet in terms of threats. And now it's such a widely accepted concept that if you think of the internet, you need to think of it in terms of threats. But, but to what extent do you think it's actually right to credit the Russian authorities or Russian players with actually being so successful in intervening in the affairs of other countries, including the U.S.? Isn't this all a bit far-fetched with some Russian entities simply buying ads on Facebook or creating fake groups on Facebook or promoting some strange causes on Twitter, etc.? Those things, could they really turn an election? I think it's two completely separate issues. One thing is uh, whether they interfered, whether they tried to do anything. And I think now we know the answer. Yes, we did. The completely different problem is uh, how effective it was. And I think here we have a problem because we are dealing with people and organizations which wanted to promote themselves inside their bureaucracies as a very effective organizations at changing public opinion. And I'm not talking only about uh, Prigozhin, but for instance, Cambridge Analytica, they were doing exactly the same thing. They tried to impress their customers with what they did. And of course, it was in their interest to overestimate the effects of their public campaigns. And then we just take it at face value that they changed the results in elections in that country and this country. And I think it's still a very big problem because a few statistics, I mean, the numbers of that or this ad was shown to how many people. It's actually, it's not... Um, definite answer to what extent all these numbers, all these ads actually changed someone's opinion. I think that after 
almost four years of Trump in power, we can see that, look, this guy was elected by the Americans because he's still quite popular. Now we magically move from the internet to the brick and mortar world of real life and I'd get and speak a little bit about your recent book, which is about Russian speaking communities abroad and the Russian state's interest in them. I would ask, first of all, what was the reason why did you decide to look into this as your next subject? It was very surprising even for us because, you know, we are so far from the immigration as anybody could be because no one, no one from our family emigrated. That's a very rare fact in Moscow, you know, but nobody, even one auntie or uncle, nobody immigrated from our family. But Two years ago, when we started thinking about writing the new book, we started talking about two things, poisoning, targeting political emigration abroad, and about emigration at all. We were talking, talking and talking, discussing this, and as a result, we decided to write a book about the Kremlin and the emigration, about the political emigration and how the Kremlin having a deal with political emigration abroad, including harsh methods like killing, intimidating, and even poisoning. If uh, the last book is, it's about how to, the Kremlin tried to control people beyond the Russian borders. Because the Kremlin has been always fascinated and obsessed with the threat ostensibly posed by political exiles. Which is a very ironic thing, because the Russian opposition abroad, we all know that we got our first political exiles probably in the 16th century. So it has such a long history but mostly it's a history of uh, political disasters and uh, it was never really successful. We have so many story stories of Russian writers, Russian politicians, Russian activists being forced out of the country and actually achieving almost nothing. And nevertheless, the Kremlin, given all this history, has been obsessed with this threat right after the revolution, revolution of 1917. So we tried to answer this question, why? Why we get so obsessed with this threat? And why? When we started the research for the book, we were sure that Russian security services, they are very far from the Stalin security services and from the KGB. But when we finished our research, we came to the conclusion that, oh, God, they are really very similar to each other still, and they are using the same methods. Stalin was completely obsessed with his political rivals, and he ordered the killing of Trotsky even given the fact that Trotsky was not a political threat to him that time. Even when Trotsky was killed in 1940, even after that, Stalin tasked his security services, his spies abroad, following Trotsky's supporters, Trotskyists in the United States and Trotskyists in the European countries, which was really crazy because it was only months left until the moment German invaded Russia. And it was a Second World War already started, but Stalin was obsessed uh, with Trotsky and his supporters. The Kremlin and Putin inherited this obsession. Ah, so they feel less in control outside of the country, and this kind of gives them uh, this irrational feeling of... Of course, and the issue of the Russian Revolution, because they still believe that a group of immigrants made this revolution in 1917, and a small group of Russian immigrants like Lenin, Trotsky, and other people just organized a call which killed 
the whole empire completely. They still believe in this version. It's not true. And it's clear that's not true because there was a First World War, a lot of reasons for Russian revolution, including the pathetic state of the Russian empire and anti-Semitism and many, many, and terrible state of working classes and so far, so on. But people in the Kremlin and Putin personally, They don't believe in this. They believe that a small group of immigrants organized a co-op and got the country. But you mentioned poisonings, which takes quite a role in your book. You describe in quite in some detail the workings of the so-called laboratory acts that existed in the 30s and 40s, as I understand, which was dedicated to creating and uh, testing poison and the substances of the Novichok family that are on the news recently obviously are also a Soviet creation. Why do you think poison was so important for the Soviet secret police? I think there are two sides to that. First of all, it's easy to deny responsibility. And well, and we see that even now we have so many government officials and not even government officials denying completely that the poisoning having a place. But on the other hand, it's much more effective in terms of sending a message to a particular group of people. When you shoot somebody to death, it means that actually you already had a person killed and you only need to deal with uh, the consequences. But if somebody is poisoned, poisoning could take sometimes days, sometimes weeks, and this person is suffering a lot. And the poisoning targets not only this particular person, but also his close associates, his family, his relatives. And it's horrible for all these people. The Russian Soviet security services, we understood that very early, that if you need to target a political opponent, it's good to make it clear that it's not about one person, it's about a group of people who would be subject to this attack. And actually, it works pretty well. Even with, for instance, the most disastrous operation for the Russian intelligence, I mean, the poisoning of Skripals. Yes, it was unsuccessful in terms of that Skripal. Yeah, Skripal survived and his daughter survived. But I was really astonished that when we researched for the book and we talked to many people, almost every one of them, from Khodorkovsky to security services people to a very highly placed priest, to some oligarchs are still in the country. All of them asked us about Novichok. And they were visibly shaken and they were visibly concerned and worried and they didn't know, know what actually to expect next. So it has such a big and tremendous impact on them emotionally and psychologically. And it's such a strong message that now we don't know any rules. These people, they are so brutal. They are so... We have no limits in their actions, and it's very difficult to predict how these rules are actually changing. It was such a shock to so many people that I would say it was quite successful. If the idea was to intimidate Russians abroad, it certainly worked. I agree. This is something actually mind-boggling sometimes, because yes, you see a botched operation on the one hand, but it's uh, kind of weirdly successful in intimidating everyone. But what do you think would change with um, the current story, what we are witnessing right now, with obviously with Alexei Navalny, who, if we believe the German authorities, was poisoned by one of the New Year substances from that same family, Novichok. How do you see that? What do you expect next? It happened many times before when Russians poisoned it. And you know that their action from the West was quite weak. 
For the first time, when Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned and killed back in 2006, there was no any proper reaction after the event. And only a few years after, there was some weak reaction, which really was some kind of encouragement for the Kremlin. Uh, we got a proper reaction to the poisoning only after Skripal's and his daughter poisoning. But also we know that it was not so effective about this case because we hope that Navalny will be getting better and better and come back to the country, everything will be okay. But in terms of international consequences for the Kremlin, we are not very optimistic. Let's see, Marx, because it's happened many times before and a sanction that was imposed on the Kremlin was quite weak. One thing we need to understand, it's not only about Russia. So we can see that some of the countries also tried in their past the same approach, killing their people abroad. For instance, uh, it was about the French killing German arms traders in the 1960s because we wanted them to stop selling arms to the Algerians. And it happened in the 1980s after Franco died in Spain and the new democratic government came into power and they sent death squads to France to kill the Basque. And in all these cases... The idea of the French government and the Spanish government was not only to kill people, but also to change the policies of the targeted countries. And unfortunately, I should say that in both cases, it worked. The French actually stopped the Germans selling arms to Algeria. Spanish in the 1980s were actually convinced the French to add the ETA movement uh, to the list of terrorist organizations. And that was only because of the series of assassinations. So when we think that just by definition, the assassination attempts should provoke some big outrage internationally and it should have some effects, it's just a theory. Okay, then. Well, we probably conclude. Let's try and see if we can find a brighter conclusion for this conversation. When you finish the work on Compatriots, the book about Russian-speaking communities and the Russian state's obsession with emigres, what is your conclusion? The one thing which is completely new, and we are not used to it, is that the idea of Russian emigration, apart from all other types of emigrations from other countries, was always very depressing because people were living Russia to stay outside forever. And they always uh, say goodbye and they never expected or hoped to get back. That was the way the Russian immigration actually worked. And the very first time in Russian history, now we have something which is not from this Russian textbook. I would say now the Russian political immigration looks more similar to what we see in Latin America, when people sometimes forced to leave the country, but there are some ways to get back, if not in person, but online, or they can still fund some organizations in their country. Or sometimes we can get back. For instance, Vladimir Karamurza, he lives in Washington, D.C., but he can get back and he can stay in Russia at least for days, maybe weeks. And he does, really. And he does. So it is possible. And I think it's a very new thing, not only for the Russian society and for the Russian immigration, but it's also a very new thing for the Russian government. The borders are still open and uh, they're still porous. It's actually the same thing as uh, we see with the Internet. We are at the stage of the development of the civilization that to cut all these cables, all these connections is absolutely impossible. And what we also learned from researching for the Red Web and for the competitors that the Russian bureaucracy relies heavily on Soviet experience, trying to use something from the Soviet textbook. And right now it would not work.
just because the situation completely changed and the borders are open. And I think this is uh, something really new and really good. Great. I think this is a great way of concluding our conversation. So thank you, Irina. Thank you, Andre. I'm sure we'll meet again. So take care. Be safe. Let's talk more in the future. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.